Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to writer and filmmaker Rebecca Miller about her exquisite new short story collection, Total. I think that there's a strong element, perhaps, of motherhood in them and also daughterhood and family, you know, just, I think, in general, both the gravity the gravitational pull of family, but also that kind of vertigo that family (laughs) creates. More from the brilliant Rebecca Miller later on. But first, I just wanted to applaud the absolute courage and bravery and fierceness of the women and girls in Iran who are protesting in the aftermath of the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died while in custody for not following the rules on how women should dress. I've just been astonished by the footage that was circulating this week of schoolgirls in Tehran throwing water bottles and shouting at an education official in a school and forcing him out of the school gates. And women all over that country have been removing and burning the hijab in protest against the regime there. And of course, there have been protests all over the world. I'm actually just back from a trip to San Francisco And at the weekend, there was a protest in Union Square there in solidarity with the women in Iran. And I suppose it remains to be seen whether any of this gets through to the so-called morality police there. But as I said, I just want to express how incredible their courage and determination is in the face of such despicable treatment of women. Now, Rebecca Miller is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, author and screenwriter from America who has written and directed six feature films. They include Angela and Personal Velocity, which was a movie based on her brilliant short story collection of the same name, which won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Her other movies are The Ballad of Jack and Rose, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, Maggie's Plan and Arthur Miller, which was a documentary in 2017 for HBO. And of course, Arthur Miller, the playwright, was also her father. And her mother was acclaimed photographer in Gmurath. So she comes from very creative stock. And she's also married to Oscar-winning actor Daniel Day-Lewis. The couple share a home with their sons in County Wicklow. When I caught up with her, she was in a busy hotel in Dublin city centre. So you'll hear a bit of ambient background noise as I talk to her about her new book of short stories called Total, which is a really wonderful collection. Here she is, Rebecca Miller. Rebecca, first of all, I just want to congratulate you because I absolutely love your book. And oh, thank each you. story was just 
like even better than the next. I said to my mother yesterday, mother, you have to read this book. My mom listens to books now because she has a problem with her eyesight. And I yeah. said, this is going to be, you're just going to love it. So first of all, I just want to say congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, Roisin. That's really great. Thank well, you. And then the other thing is they're all about, they're fascinating insights into the lives of seven different women. And there's lots of women within the stories as well. So more than seven women. And I believe you wrote it over a number of years. So I was just curious about yeah. um, how you came to these stories and what was there? Was there a main inspiration or did they all come from very different places? Well, the first story, Mrs. Covet, that's in the collection, was actually started when I was breastfeeding a child who's now 20. So it gives you a sense. <laughs> but, and so... Some of the stories were completed as time went on, but some of them I was only able to really find the answer to how to write them much later in the pandemic, actually. So, but I, when I found that my agent, she, she said at a certain point before the pandemic, she actually said, you know, I think maybe you have a book. Like I had a number of stories. She said, if you had a few more stories, I think, you know, maybe there's actually a book that you've, I didn't really realize that I had been, you know, accruing these stories. So when the pandemic happened, I had all this time and I started to kind of go back to certain things that I hadn't been able to figure out how to do yet. I hadn't been able to figure out how to sort of put flesh on some of these ideas or occurrences. And I think, although not all of the stories, but I think that there's a strong element perhaps of motherhood in them and also daughterhood. Although, you know, and the, and the, the, the fierce bonds and complications of that uh, bond and family, you know, just I think in general, both the gravity the gravitational pull of family, but also that kind of vertigo that family <laughs> creates. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you started it when you were like a new, newish mother, or uh, I don't know if that was your oldest child or no, that was my youngest child. Okay, yeah. so you, you've had you've had three children, so this was your your third. Well, my my first child was is my stepson, so I've actually made I've cooked two of them personally. Cooked them, I yeah. like it <laughs> because Mrs. Covet is the opening story, and it's I mean it's it's a it's brilliantly done because it really uh, gets under the skin of that um, overwhelming feeling that some mothers have when they have children that it doesn't come naturally to everybody, and in sails this woman, Mrs. Covet of the of the title of the story, to kind of take over. And the woman is very much um, torn between feeling grateful to this woman for, for, you know, coming in as the nursemaid and the help meet and all of that, but also feeling like she should be able to do it herself. And that is a really nice um, tightrope that I think some people feel when they have children. Definitely. You know, sometimes one is overwhelmed and and then at the same time, you know, you want you want help and you want relief, but you also really don't. And there's also a kind of... You know, I think in that story, there's that feeling that of, 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 um, uh, uh, the feeling of being protective of your baby, and that you're really the between that baby and death is you. I mean, in reality, like you're keeping the baby alive, yeah. and that's a huge thing, which I don't think is talked about that much, but that's true. And 
you know, my, I did have one experience um, where my brother's child died um, that I was very close to and took care of. She was a baby and she died of SIDS. And that, that I gave that to the story. Um, but I do think that it, you know, that just the knowledge of death like that, that, you know, death happens is underneath a lot of the anxiety that women feel as, you know, as mothers. Now, you mentioned the pandemic there and the fact that sort of you got the space in a way to do that. So what was that like for you? I'm always interested in how things were for people. Like, where were you and did, because some people couldn't read books, never mind write them. Um, obviously, it was creatively uh, productive for you. Yeah, I mean, I think we were in the countryside. We escaped uh, on March, I think, 11th. And... Uh, we got out of New York and uh, went upstate. And we, you know, I started a vegetable garden and all the kids were there. And, but I had a lot of time free. The youngest child was in high school, at the last year of high school. So I was able to work in the morning. So it was kind of a very simple, disciplined life, you know, a little room where I can write there. So, I just found that it was very comforting, actually, to write because there was so much, it was terrifying. Like, every time you turned on the news, the bodies in a freezer outside of the Queen's hospital and just terrible things. And, you know, writing was kind of like a way of protecting myself with stories. Mm. Because I read one thing you said in an interview once, which I found very interesting. You said about when you have a family, you step aside, you let other people be the centre and part of being a woman is that you can't remember what it is to be the centre of things. Is writing away and storytelling a way for you to get back to yourself aside from motherhood? I think so. I mean, I got, you know, that was probably said in a time, you know, in a different period as being the mother of kids who are basically adults is a very different, is a very different thing than being like a full on mother of young children. And it has been amazing to be able, like I also I made a film that, this last year and I have to say it's just like being able to just come home and be obsessed with the thing that you did all day and not basically roll out of the car and like immediately start frying onions was an amazing <laughs> amazing thing and I do think that that thing of that probably throughout my life as a mother I did that was my thing my secret room that I could go into um, but I also feel that all my life, my imaginative life has been that, you know, sort of private place, a little realm that I could control and I could, not control is maybe the word, wrong word, but I could slip into it and there was a kind of comfort there, even though writing is a very, very difficult thing. It's not like it's so easy and you just, you know, some of these stories took years to figure out how to, how to write, so... That makes me feel a little bit better because they're so good. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading them very, very jealously and going, oh, how did you, I mean, did, I'm glad to hear it took a long time because they're, for me, they're perfectly crafted. And some of them have these really interesting twisty endings that you don't see coming. And, you know, there's a lot going on in, in each of them. So I'm glad to hear you had to like sweat over them. Oh, I really did. I mean, my gosh, like that one um that's called I Want You to Know, which is where the woman finds the letter and, you know, murderous letter in a, in a, thing, in a piece of furniture she's renovating. Um, I carried around the letter itself for years. 
thinking this is a story. This is some, that character came first. And I just couldn't figure out how to make that into a story. And then I thought, it, it's that it has to be found by someone else. And it was sort of thinking about Edgar Allan Poe, which is definitely not a writer I, I mean, I, I really admire, but have, admire him, but I wouldn't be influenced usually. But I was trying to th- kind of think about that creepiness and that frighteningness and how kind of a house can suddenly take on a malign feeling. Um, and also it was just obviously a story about the power of the imagination and, and, and uh, how we you know, the relationship of a reader and a writer. But but that took years, years to figure out. And that was only in the pandemic that I, that, that I finally, Jode, the character of Jode finally arrived. And I could, I could find a frame for the story. Sometimes I car- carry characters or events around for many years before I could figure out how to, how to make them go forward as a story. The other one I wanted to talk to you about is receipts, which, I mean, as I said, I really admire them all. But that one is really interesting. It's about a, a very ambitious woman, a woman who doesn't want to have children, a woman who's in a relationship. And there's a sexual assault in that story that's so well done and so interesting. I was wondering what inspired that, because it's kind of it's different to one I've read maybe before and how how it's how it happens, how it affects her or doesn't affect her or how her life yeah. moves forward. Well, you know, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say that every single woman I know has been probably in some way sexually assaulted. So that is um, a, an amalgam. You know, I was carrying that idea around. But also the, the idea that, you, that she, it fuels a kind of something in her that was there anyway, that her reaction is not one of a victim. I was very interested in that, like how that works, her, her reaction. That took a long time too, but her character kind of came to me as a kind of gift. Like she arrived, that angry but funny voice. And I found her really liberating because she doesn't want to have kids. She's not apologetic about it. She wants to be her own boss. She wants to make as much money as she possibly can. She is probably on the other end of the political spectrum than I am. All these things that I... But I loved writing her. I mean, that's the great thing about writing, is that you can visit, you know, inhabit other people, truly inhabit them. And I felt like, yeah, she was a really interesting character to write. I was thinking of the Me Too movement as I read it as well, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, being in film, someone who's been in the film industry as well, which is where it obviously erupted and kind of moved from. Well, what are you thought of thinking about how things have uh, come up over the last few years with women speaking out much more about these stories? I think it's necessary. I mean, how could it not happen? No, nothing stays secret forever, you know? And the fact is that the really strange and ugly truth is, and I think it's hard to accept is that most women have been in some way sexually assaulted by somebody. And that's awful. And yet, you know, like, who, and it's important that we talk about it and uh, that we are okay with talking about it. I mean, it's not that you necessarily have to share in a real way everything that's happened to you, but it's important that, you know, I think it's important that these things are aired. Um, at the same time, at the same time, I would not want to live in a world where 
sexuality is demonized. And I think that one of the things I really don't like is for women to be classified or to classify themselves primarily as victims, because I don't think they are victims. I mean, I think that we're incredibly strong, resilient, and, you know, people who can handle sex, you know? And I think that that's what this character is, was about a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I imagine being the mother of sons as well, because talking about demonized young men in some ways are, are at the moment kind of demonized in that way. Yeah. Unfairly, I would say. I agree completely. I mean, I think that, you know, I remember my, my middle son coming back from his first sexual orientation talk in college and he was just like oh my god you know they were sort of there was a kind of fear of do of doing anything but then you know I think they also then it all calms down and they and they all have you know they're actually all quite sane these kids for the most part and they 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 work it out between them and it'll all shake out you know the pendulum swings one way it swings the other way and then it kind of like falls into the middle somewhere. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to have not had it happen, I think. That's the thing. Because then you're just in a world where Harvey Weinstein is still, you know, roaming around happily. And, you know, those kind of extremes need to be talked about. But maybe we need to talk more about the joy of sex a bit more. That was a very kind of 70s kind of thing. I think there was a book, The Joy of Sex. But. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Which so. some of us learned a lot from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing is I, th- I think that's right. And, and that, you know, I think that, that sexuality is having a kind of a dark moment right now where it's almost like gone for a minute. It's not... There's sort of porn or chastity. And I think we have to reclaim the middle ground. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a big fan of Cindy Gallup, a, a, another person based in New York who has Make Love Not Porn, a company where ordinary people have sex and film themselves. And it's oh, real really? life sex. You need to check it uh, out. It's fantastic. Oh, really? Well, I'm not saying you need to check it out, but you might be on a rainy afternoon. I recommend it as in <laughs> as in like it there is an alternative and she's doing something very different. Um because it's it's real life sexual experiences and people are, you know, enjoying that and not the kind I of I think that's which we know now porn has become this not it's not the place to go to learn about sex, I don't think. No, or for young girls to <laughs> yeah. learn about what they're supposed to look like or for young boys to learn about what they can expect. I mean, I know it's, uh, but I mean, I have to say, I really do take heart in the generation of my kids because the women that they're bringing home are these amazing people, amazing. And they have these committed, beautiful relationships with them and they're strong people. They're, they're, these women are just free and wonderful. And so you, you think, okay, so it can't be that bad. I mean, <laughs> It gives me heart. Well, that's great to hear. I love that. Um, I have to talk to you about a story called She Came to Me because it's set in Dublin. Now, you live yeah. in you live between Wicklow and New York, is that right? Yeah, yes. So um, I was really excited when I saw him walking down Dame Street, the main guy in the, in, yeah. the, in the novel. So tell us about that one and where that came from, because this is a novelist who's kind of run out of road, who's looking for a big idea, who can't find one and... He has an encounter in, in um, I'm imagining it's a bar on Duke Street. I feel like it's the, the Duke or somewhere like that. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I really would wander around in Dublin and love living around here and love going to Dublin and thinking about it as a place. And uh, 
I wanted to write, you know, it just, it, I, I had the experience of not being able to find a parking space in one of these massive parking garages and just going up and up and up in this sort of endless loop. And I was thinking, oh my God, how is it possible that like there's not one parking space and all these massive cars? And, and I was, and I was getting grumpier and grumpier. And so I, I kind of used that for his, his thing of like, it's like trying to find an idea for a novel was like trying to find a parking space in that parking garage. Like every time you think you found one, it's taken by somebody else. Um, uh, and it's fun. I mean, I've really enjoyed in one other time, well, a couple of other times I've, I've written in a male, from a male perspective, uh, Jacob's Folly, my novel was written entirely in a male perspective, but, um, I loved writing Kieran. I thought he was, he was funny. He was funny, but also, yeah, I didn't really like him myself. No, (laughs) no, I mean, I kind of feel like he's not that likable, but I understand him. Like I kind of got him. He, he's, you know, I'm probably too merciful on, you know, I I tend to be very merciful on all my characters. It's very hard for me to think of, I never write a character that, even if they do really bad things, I can't seem to not understand them. I don't think I can write them unless I can understand them. Yeah, and I think that's um, why their stories work so much, because it doesn't feel like you're judging these people, even though some of them are doing not very nice things or thinking bad thoughts. Uh, there isn't that judgment it's too subtle and nuanced as readers even though they might be doing something bad we're still not necessarily hating them but so that's that's, I think that's one of the achievements of all the stories actually Um, talk to me about Total because Total is the title of the of the book uh, and it's one of the stories and it's kind of I suppose maybe science fiction might be a bit too much, but it's certainly dystopian and yeah. it's about the power of technology in our lives. I mean, I'm at the moment where my, I've, I've two 13 year old daughters. They've just got their first iPhones. I'm oh absolutely God. like, oh, <laughs> Jesus. You know, I think I did very well to get to this point without them having a phone. But now I'm like, oh, that's it. Now it's over. And I'm Snapchat, send it. They're on their bloody phones all the time. And I loved reading your story because I think it, taps into that and then it goes it takes it further so I'd love to know about the inspiration um, of Total and maybe tell people a little bit about it so Total the idea is that there's it's, it's in the it's in the future but not so far in the future um, and we're looking back on a time where there was something called the Total Phone which enabled people who are on a call to mind meld in such a way that it was like a kind of bliss that people likened to breastfeeding or, you know, what it was like for Adam and Eve before the fall, a kind of like some people achieve orgasm, but generally there's just like a flush of heat and a feeling of absolute total bliss. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of total betrayals in the period, but, and a lot of, you know, but what happens is that um, they, as so often happens with miracle technology, there's fallout. And what happens is they realize that there are, um, uh, there's toxicity that happens with regular users where there's abnormal embryos and children with these very specific birth defects, which they call total syndrome. And it takes them some years uh, to, A, understand what it is, but B, the, of course, the companies sort of don't admit it and try and cover it up. So in that period, there's a lot of these children born 
And they have a very distinct look and uh, with a sort of triangular head and these like little high up eyes. And, but but it, it, there's something that where they, it's the, the shape of the head is disguised in, 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 uh, in the, in the, when they do scans so that uh, you can't really tell if you've had a, if you have one until you've given birth. So this, the main character of the girl of the story, Roxanne, her sister is a total and her mother was part of, discovering the total and actually inventing it and, uh, um, and making it something that people could afford. So she made it, popularized it. And so she feels so guilty that she's had this child. Um, and the children are generally taken care of in these centers. And the story is basically that Roxanne decides to free her sister from a total care center and goes on the lam, basically, with her sister and her roommate from boarding school. I know it's it's a fascinating one, and I I'm just really I, I'm I'm not brilliant on dystopia, but I I think when it's rooted in real life, I can handle it. And there was enough of real; it felt very uh, like it wasn't too far in the future, so you could still imagine everything. I agree. I'm not a big fan of it either. I like things to be pretty rooted in reality, but I do think that that's it's because I think if it does work for people, it works because of the flesh and blood relationships between everybody. Like just that sort of clocking in, clocking out, you, you, you work. I think it's one of the hardest things when people become artists and don't have a boss and have to kind of like do something. I mean, they might have a job on the side, but their real job is making art. It's very hard to make that your job. Whereas for me, that was normal. It was very normal. What do you think you took from both of them in terms of your artistry? Is there, is, was there, are there things that you can see? that came from them? Well, I think my mother's visual gave me a great visual education. She used to take me to museums a lot and show me photographs, show me how her own photographs worked. You know, with my dad, I don't know. I mean, I suppose I love, I, I don't exactly know, excepting that, again, it's just having an, an ear for how people speak. My thing is, I've always been just really interested in people. That's the thing that really pushes me along, I think, is I'm just fascinated by characters, anybody. Like, I'm just interested in people. And I think everybody's potentially fascinating. And so 
Uh, and so that's why I loved writing this book of stories because it's like I got to, um, you know, people it with all these characters that were that kind of knocking on my door, you know, like inside my head. And it was a great, it was just a lovely experience to be able to do that. And even though it took so long. And I suppose some children, when their parents are, you know, artists, they might go completely the other way. But would you feel it was inevitable for you? Do you feel, was was there ever a time when you pushed against it perhaps or said, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to compete with these two other people? I think I just wasn't really good at anything else. Like, you know, honestly, I, you know, the, apart from the arts, like I just didn't have any other gifts. I, I could have, I don't know. I, I don't think I had this, in a funny way, the self-discipline. I mean, I'm very disciplined, but oh, about things that I really want to do, like making, you know, making work, I, I'm very disciplined. But if it was something that I, I don't know if like I could, I would have been curious enough to be a psychologist, but would I have been able to really do that? I don't think so. I think about the things, I, other things I could have done. I could have been a nanny. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and listen, is there something in the number seven? Because there were seven stories in Personal Philosophy or other collection of short stories. There's seven stories in this one. Do you have a, something to do with that number? I don't know. It's interesting. I know. I I know that's true. I love the number seven. I think it's my favorite number. I was seven pounds when I was born. There's something like I just like. I think the number seven is a sort of magical number. Um, now, listen. I have to ask you about your husband Daniel Day Lewis as well. We sort of feel we own him a bit in Ireland because of the fact that he's sort of from here, and also and you do yeah because of my left foot because I remember yeah, growing course. up in Sandy Mount and. Um, the big thing was that Daniel used to come down to the, to the local um, clinic and he would, you know, be with a lot of the people there in order to, as we know, he prepares a lot for roles and we're all very, very fond of him. So that's a, I mean, but you're also very private, which is interesting because you live in Wicklow, but we don't see you about, you're not the kind of people who want to be going to openings and turning up to the openings of envelopes and things. But I suppose I just want to ask, how is he? How's he getting on? Oh, he's good. And he loves it here so much. I mean, Ireland is really his spiritual home. Like, even though because of me and the kids and work, my work and, you know, and he has some very close friends over there as well. But this is really where he feels best and at most at home. And so you do. He is yours. Yeah, oh, good. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> because you also worked with him in The Ballad of Jack and Rose as well, which must have been yeah. a, a great experience to write something and have your partner sort of be in it. Oh, it was an amazing experience. That was an amazing experience. Also because we we built that whole set, which is a abandoned commune, but we built them all, all there are all these sort of berms that have grass on them and 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 Daniel helped design the, the, the whole place. And so there was a very it was a very it was very amazing to be obsessed by the same thing because you know, usually you're sort of have your own there's that room that nobody can go into that's your imagination room of your imagination when, when you're sharing that that's a really lovely thing and do you think you might do any work together again or I hope so I hope so you know I really do I mean you know finding the thing uh, is tricky but uh, if we did find it I think we'd both be really happy to do it yeah. And Rebecca, the other thing I've been thinking about, because this movie is out about Marilyn Monroe and your father was once married to Marilyn Monroe. Is that something you'll watch? Is that something that looms in your sort of consciousness? I know you made that film about your dad, which explored all of that as well a few years ago. 
Um, I, I don't know. I might. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. sure. You don't know if you'll watch it? No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. In a way, probably going back and doing that film, there was sort of an excavation of that at the time. And maybe it's kind of, is there a sense of putting a lid on something? When, when a little bit, I think. I mean, it was sort of very strange to do it, I have to say, in some places. In some ways, it felt very familiar. And then when you got past where you were born, you know, and into a time where I didn't exist and he was, you know, you start seeing him as a man and not as a father and more and more and... and uh, sometimes I felt that I should almost not be there, you know, like I, I, I didn't have any business, you know, looking into all this stuff. But on the other hand, it became then at a certain point, you have to take some distance and see it as a subject. You know, he became my subject. Um, but yeah, I guess so. I guess I do feel a bit like that. I did the thinking I needed to do about that and I'm done for now. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. Um, actually, I haven't seen that film. I really want to watch. Is it available to watch somewhere? Or um, my film? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's um, it, it's on HBO. Um, so I don't. I mean, it's still on HBO. So if you if you, but I I don't know how you get it. If it's if you don't have HBO, I actually don't know. But if you look it up, Arthur Miller writer streaming, I think you could find it. Yeah, I'm sure there's some trickery which we won't talk about. I can probably yeah. find it somewhere. <laughs> I think so. And we haven't talked about Vapors, which is one of the stories. And I, again, I love them all, but I love that too. It's this kind of almost, I think someone described it as a Russian doll nest egg of this woman's relationships are revealed. You know, she's in a great place at the beginning and she meets someone who brings, it spirals back through all these kind of pretty awful traumatic kind of relationships did you enjoy um exploring that and writing that because it just it sh- to me it showed how you know made me think of myself you know the things we go through you end up one place but it, to get there you had to go through all this other crap, yeah for one for a better word well that nexus of time where she's having all these different messy affairs um was something that i was trying to figure out how to write about that phenomenon that moment in a woman's life where where she hasn't quite gelled as a person yet on us like you know she's still figuring that out and I was and and I couldn't quite figure that out for a long time and that was actually one of the stories that I wasn't able to write until uh until much later and I then I thought oh I know she runs into the worst boyfriend she ever had while she's pushing her son in her his stroller and it this cascade of memories comes back, comes to her, and, and she's sort of, it's like a wormhole. And the way you do when you're talking to somebody, but at the same time, you're suddenly falling down the rabbit hole of so many memories, and yet it could only take a few seconds, and then you're back saying, okay, great seeing you. But meanwhile, you know, you've had this novel's worth of um, memories. And what are you working on now? Because, you know, you talked about at the beginning about your children being sort of grown up, not having that thing of having to fry onions or whatever it is. Yes. Um, does this feel like a time of great possibility? I mean, you've done an awful lot during your time as a parent and having to, while you were frying onions, you were also making films, <laughs> writing books. So well done on that. Um, but does this feel like a different time now? Like a, a time when you've got this open sort of space to to create, to be, to do? It does. It feels amazing from the point of view of just pragmatically, you know, like that I have so much less obligation um, in terms of family. Uh, Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm married. My kids are, you know, they still come home and all of that. But it's a very different kind of sense of of how you have to spend your day. And uh, 
it's kind of bewildering in a way. It's amazing. I, I, like I said, I just finished a film, which, I mean, I finished shooting and then I now just finished cutting it, but I don't really know what's going to happen next. It's, it's kind of amazing moment for me, I guess. Yeah. And are you writing anything at the moment? I have something that I'm writing that I'm starting to do some research on, but at very, very early stages, like very early stages. So I would like to write a novel uh, at some point if I can find my way there. It, it always takes me a while to to find the like the mental energy, a subject, but also just the mental energy to that you have to be very whole of mind. I think to write a, a novel, like it just takes so much. And I want to ask you about your life in Ireland because how have you found it? I mean, you you were American, obviously grew up in New York. You had a very New Yorky kind of uh, childhood. Um, this is obviously very different. But do you feel kind of Irish too as well? Do you, have you kind of taken to a, it very well? I have a very strong, you know, because now I ra- we raised our kids partly here. And so I have a lot of really strong memories from here. And once you have strong memories in any place, that becomes like when I come back here, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the stone right before that turning and that's the store and this is the thing and that's the field and it becomes like it's part of you so that's definitely happened to me where Ireland has become a part of myself and also the west which we always visited um which I love a lot for sure yeah I mean as much as I'm I guess I'll always really be a American for better or worse like I'm not I'm not somebody who could like be a complete expatriate but um, but I do love it here very much. And, I, and it's, yeah, it's been great. Speaking a bit about being an American for better or worse, how do you feel about your country, your home country now? I mean, I'm thinking about Roe versus Wade, considering all these stories are very much about women's experiences. How have you felt about the recent happenings there? Uh, uh, I, it's, um, I think it's, sometimes it's good to have a fight you know, to have something to fight for. Uh, I just don't, we didn't realize that everything was up for grabs that way. You know, uh, it's almost like I can't fully process it. It's like there's, I think I'm still in shock, honestly. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who are sort of still in shock. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of, there's a strong tide in our society, maybe in all societies, but I mean, I certainly don't feel it here really, to push us back into the 19th century, actually. And (laughs) um, they won't because we're not in the 19th century, but um, the machinery of power is something that, you like to believe that you live in a free society and that we're actually free people. Um, but there are corridors and machineries at work that are not in evidence every day, let's just put it. There are sort of forces that have to be reckoned with. And I find that's the part that I find so confusing and figuring out. Uh, but having said all of that, I also feel like... It's a very interesting time, and it's a very compelling time for an artist to write about, uh, to write inside of, because it's not a pleasant time, but it's very interesting and it's compelling. And it and being angry is sometimes not a bad thing, you know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I hope I live to get past this period of time in the country. I don't know. Well, I think in in total, there's every single uh, human emotion, I think, and every, and so many experiences that I think people will relate to, but also that are different, that will make people think and feel. And I suppose that's the biggest thing for me. I, I really felt transported by each story. I felt I was living inside them. And it doesn't always happen for me with short stories. I felt like I was there. I feel like I could step into each of them again, you know, and... They were, it's just a really brilliant achievement as I said at the beginning and I, you should be don't want to sound patronising because I know you're a brilliant writer but you should be very proud of what you've achieved there Thank you so much it means a lot to me it means a lot to me to you know affect another person to reach another person because you don't know how, if you can you know you, do, you don't know Well I think you have and you will and you did and uh yeah, I just want to wish you the best of luck with everything and uh, say hello to Daniel from the Women's Podcast <laughs> and good luck with everything else you do. That's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Rebecca Miller and that book again is called Total and I highly recommend it. Every story is an absolute gem. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. 